there, and we'll go back to Peace in Their Time, episode 58, The Plot Thickens. The work of getting an armed intervention into Siberia had not gone well by spring 1918. What with the Western Entente members waffling over participation, and the Americans especially being reluctant to join in. As discussed last week, though, some within the Japanese leadership, especially in the Army and Foreign Office, were looking for excuses to go in. In late March 1918, Motono revealed all the negotiations and planning that had been taking place to lay the groundwork for the intervention to his elites. Up to this point, his negotiations with the Entente mostly on his own initiative and lacked open approval, and the admission didn't go over well. The anti-interventionists, fronted by Hara, had not changed their stance despite the evolving circumstances in Siberia and the machinations of the army and foreign office. Hara raked Matano over the coals, accusing him of overstepping his bounds by negotiating with their allies like he was authorized to launch an intervention himself. Of course, Matano's activities had been known by Prime Minister Taruchi and tacitly allowed by him with the support of the army. But keep in mind, Matano was the odd man out when it came to factions, and he was very isolated politically. Taruchi simply let him take the heat. But with the government still divided after all these months, a resolution was needed, so they went to Yamagata. The old field marshal agreed to an intervention in principle, but pointed out that Japan wasn't economically capable of going it alone, and the cooperation of all the major allies and China would be needed. Since that wasn't there, Hara wheeled back around on Matano and shut down the plan to intervene. Matano was not having a good march at this point and was worried that there would be no strike against the Bolsheviks he so despised. On April 2nd, he presented Taruchi with a memorandum detailing the necessity of a landing in the Far East, that such a move would solve Japan's security questions. The memo was forceful enough that Taruchi concluded that Matano would act independently to force intervention and events on the mainland only exacerbated the Prime Minister's feeling of unease. Revolutionary action in Vladivostok was beginning to accelerate under the auspices of Bolshevik authorities. Independent workers and soldiers had started seizing public buildings on March 25th, and it was feared the city would devolve into anarchy. There were no foreign troops actually in the city at the time, only the warships hovering menacingly off the docks. The local Japanese naval commander, Admiral Kato, advised that if the consular staff in the city requested it, Marines could be sent in to restore order. And on April 4th, a Japanese shop was attacked and a Japanese civilian was killed. The next day, Kato ordered his Marines ashore to occupy parts of the city in order to protect Japanese nationals and secure the weapons depots still sitting there. His action was supported by the other Entente commanders in the area, and the British even landed a small troop of their own to protect their consulate. Away from Vladivostok, the Navy began mobilizing more ships to support their guys' play, and the Army agreed to send in a regiment of infantry. Kato was quick to assure the local Russian authorities that his intention was purely peaceful and not at all directed against any faction in particular. He was merely restoring order. This didn't go over as well as he intended, and the population of the city immediately assumed this was merely the spearhead of a larger invasion. Back in Moscow, Lenin ordered his forces on the scene to prepare a fighting retreat back west, as surely a greater western intervention like those seen in European Russia would be followed. Except they didn't, at least not due to this little incident. The escalation in Vladivostok, which was almost concurrent to Matano making threatening noises of pursuing his own policy, 
initially caused a lapse in nerve for Tarochi. The old general had been suffering from diabetes and was at the end of his energies. But Yamagata simply told him to buck up and get the situation back under control. Backed by Yamagata's edict, Taruchi cajoled the military into backing down as the reinforcements were about to board the boat to Vladivostok. The entire incident greatly undermined Taruchi's authority, and everybody from that point on were looking at each other and wondering how long he was going to be able to hold on. Batono, isolated and still pressing to escalate, had to go, though. He was out by the 23rd of April. In the meantime, Japan looked to extricate itself from the whole situation. The Americans and British might have been supportive on the ground, but back in their capitals, they got very squeamish now that an extremely limited landing had actually taken place. The British and French were negotiating at the time with the Bolsheviks to maybe turn on the Germans and reopen the Eastern Front. Keep in mind this was April 1918, right in the early days of the German Spring Offensive on the Western Front. They might have been grasping at straws and trying to entice Lenin to their side, but they were willing to try anything and were afraid the occupation of Vladivostok would ruin that. After weeks of inaction, the Japanese troops left on April 25th. The Red Army immediately moved in the city and opposed the local council in favor of direct control. For the moment, all of Siberia and the Far East were under Bolshevik control. This was a big problem for the Japanese, as there really wasn't anyone capable of taking the initiative among the Russian exiles and striking back against the Red Army in the region. The most senior Russian official was a man named General Dmitry Horvat over in Harbin, but he was a timid man who constantly stalled for time in organizing a white response to the Bolsheviks and rebuffed calls for action when pressed. He might have been the main figurehead of the Russians in Manchuria, but he seemed pretty content with just hanging out. General Semenov, a far more active white officer, was effectively interned by China until April during which he built his outfit up to a strength of 2,000 men, still a pitifully small force for his ambition of conquering Russian Asia. There had also been an attempt by the last vestiges of the regional Siberian government under a politician named Peter Derberg to establish itself in Vladivostok, but it was too left-leaning for the Japanese and was left unsupported by both them and Horvat's faction. For those of you familiar with the Russian Civil War, you know that soon the most preeminent Russian leader in the area is going to be Admiral Alexander Kolchak, and he was already hanging out in Harbin, but he wasn't in charge of anything quite yet. The Bolsheviks, though, were sensitive to Russian activities in Manchuria, and knew full well that they could expect some kind of counterattack to come from there. They especially were aware of Semenov sitting right there at the border, and pressed the Chinese to let them deal with his troops. The Chinese were not at all interested in letting the Red Army on their soil and refused. Emboldened by this protection, Semenov proceeded to convince a local Cossack host on the Russian side of the border to work with him, and together the two groups began skirmishing with the Reds on the border. This irritated the Entente no end, as both the Japanese and British had been sending him a trickle of aid to outfit his troops. The British, though, were not outfitting him for an offensive while they negotiated with the Bolsheviks and cut him off. Semenov, though, did not take the hint and launched an offensive on April 21st, driving the Red Army back and advancing to within 50 miles of Cheetah by May 9th, which was a notable improvement over his winter attack which had went nowhere quick. Unfortunately for him, this success was due to Red forces being pretty much everywhere else, and his advance drew their attention right back to it. Reinforcements poured into the area and soon Semenov was outnumbered again 
this time facing 4,000 red troops. He had tried every step of the way to rally the local populace to his cause and boost his numbers, but most probably took one look at his motley outfit and concluded he really wasn't the guy. He did convince some additional Cossacks to go along with him, but they wouldn't be enough. He was exposed in 200 miles from his base in Manjuli, and when pressed by the Red Army, had to conduct a fighting retreat yet again. By the end of June, he was back where he started, and his dreams of usurping leadership of the Whites via battlefield success were dashed. A big reason he had lost was because at the moment he launched his attack, his support was withdrawn not just by the British, by the White leadership as well. Horvat had been generally supportive of the attack, but by April and May, he was fast losing importance. The Entente by this time was turning to Admiral Kolchak to lead the Whites and be their guy in the East. He proved to be the only Russian on the sea with clear ideas on how to take Siberia from the Bolsheviks. And Kolchak hated Semenov, as the Admiral had no use for Semenov's independence streak and preferred his defeat if it meant he could be reined in. Their tussle would actually cause a temporary break between Kolchak and the Japanese. The Japanese had kept on sending just enough supplies to Semenov to keep him going, which meant he felt just secure enough to defy Kolchak face-to-face when the Admiral paid him a little visit to Manjuli. The infuriated Kolchak later confronted General Nakajima, who, you'll remember, he's the guy managing all the little resistance groups in the Far East, and demanded Semenov's support be withdrawn. The confrontation did not go well, because Kolchak was kind of a belligerent asshole, and the Japanese momentarily concluded he was too British and not a guy to work with. I bet you're wondering at this point when the whole Siberian intervention proper is actually going to happen. Well, hold your horses, because it's still going to be a bit. So, now we have the Japanese once again back in Horvat's leadership, and this time pressing him to get rid of Kolchak. Horvat, not being good at confrontation, took a train to Beijing to conduct some business there, and just told a subordinate to deliver the news to Kolchak that he was being demoted. Kolchak assembled what troops he could in Harbin, and resolved to march all the way to Vladivostok and set up his own shop there. Horvat, though, had enough troops to block him before he left Manchuria. While in Beijing, the Chinese expressed their support of Kolchak, to which a probably upset Horvat had to ask the Japanese to turn the screws on China to get their support in sidelining the Admiral. Kolchak eventually just gave up and headed to Tokyo to bide his time. Uh, But by this point, everybody in Manchuria was very mad at each other, and Japan's attempts to build an anti-Bolshevik front amongst the whites was in tatters. Luckily for those in favor of an intervention, the diplomatic stars were beginning to align closer in that direction. Matono's replacement as foreign minister was a man named Goto Shimpe, a much savvier political operator. He was in favor of abandoning Matono's more lone wolf strategy and focused on setting the groundwork for a multinational intervention. By this time, Britain had hit a dead end negotiating with Moscow to bring them into the Entente fold and were ready to work against them again. The sticking point was, again, how far the expedition would go. The British wanted to march all the way to the Urals. The Japanese realized that was still an insane idea. Even the army was against that plan, as it would require every soldier in it being committed to occupying just the Trans-Siberian Corridor. Plus, the Americans still weren't terribly interested in the move. That is, until something 
wholly unexpected change the entire calculus overnight. Remember back in episode 37, I went over briefly the experience of the Czech Legion in Russia, how they started in European Russia as a force to fight the Central Powers, then found themselves pitted against the Bolsheviks, and how they decided to take the long way back home? Well, here is where they enter into the picture. The long trek east by some 50,000 Czechs, so very far from home, would make the wheels of global diplomacy turn and create a ripple effect I am positive they had next to no awareness of. The Czechs were all veterans of the Austro-Hungarian army that had been captured by the Russian Empire and reorganized into a national army, one that by 1918 was perceived as a threat by Moscow, and the Bolshevik leadership were in agreement that they wanted them out. Problem was, which way were they to go? The expedient decision was made to send them east so as to make sure they didn't throw in with any of the major white factions in European Russia. The local Bolshevik councils along the Trans-Siberian absolutely dreaded the idea, though. These cities were strung along like pearls on a necklace over the expanse of Asia, connected only by the railroad. The Czechs so chose, they could take them over one by one in a line. There was an agreement made for the Czechs to mostly disarm, but the Czech troops were understandably reluctant to go along with the plan while they were in the middle of a hostile country. On May 14, 1918, at the city of Chelyabinsk, a group of Czechs got into a disagreement with former Hungarian POWs who had joined with the Red Army, and a handful of Czechs were arrested. The Czech troops on the scene, under the leadership of a Tsarist officer who had decided to go along with them, occupied the city to release their comrades. Orders were issued by Leon Trotsky, who was in charge of the Red Army, to stop the entire legion in response. By this time, 14,000 Czechs had reached Vladivostok, but an additional 30,000 were strung out all across Asia. By July 11th, the entire Trans-Siberian from the Urals to Irkutsk around Lake Baikal had been taken, and the anti-Bolsheviks were rallying around the Czechs. It was a disaster for the Red Army, and what troops were in that vast area were forced into the hinterlands north and south of the railroad. Virtually every major town set up its own government, and for months, Entente agents would try and wrangle agreements between the communities to cooperate. The Bolsheviks saw this as a deliberate operation by the Entente. And given how complete the takeover was, it's kind of hard to argue that point. There had been rumblings between the Entente and Czech leaderships in Europe to have the Legion remain in Asian Russia to assist the war effort there. Whether there was a set plan in place is unknown, but the immediacy in which the Legion sprung into action going from evacuation to occupation in a snap indicates that it was something that had been prepared for. Deliberate or no, the success in western Siberia emboldened the British French, and they requested the 14,000 Czechs in Vladivostok put their trip home on the back burner and go back west to link up with the rest of the Legion. In exchange for military aid, coming mostly from the Japanese, they agreed. On June 28th, they seized control of Vladivostok, and Peter Derber, the moderate socialist, declared his government in control of all Siberia, which the British and French accepted at this time owing to his relative popularity in the port city. With the city secured, the moment of truth had come. The Czechs could march west, but didn't have enough troops to do that and garrison the port. The Entente would have to send troops in. The British and French led the way on this, the Brits deploying 500 men and the French sending in 300 from Indochina. 
while Japan withheld troops for the moment, they were providing ample materiel once the fighting got away, also started providing medical personnel and supplies. Ironically, it was the Japanese and Manchurian-based Russians that were totally outflanked by the development. The whole of the Trans-Siberian was falling to troops aligned most closely with the British and French, and Japan's proxies were not part of the success in any way. This pleased the Europeans, as it meant that Japan would be forced to overcome its own internal squabbling over the intervention if they had any hope of benefiting from it. Moreover, the Czechs were planning to use the railways running through Harbin to get to Chita, which would mean Japanese commitment to the Czechs' operations. General Horvat, meanwhile, assembled what troops he could and headed northward to try and get ahead of the Vladivostok Czechs, hoping to assert his own claim to the area before the foreigners could take it. As in pretty much everything else he tried to do, he was unsuccessful, and the Czechs barred his way from advancing into Siberia. He petulantly responded by declaring his own government, which he set up in the tiny town of Grotokovo, just across the Manchurian border in the ass end of nowhere. The incident pretty well demonstrated how the Japanese had almost entirely lost control of the situation in their own backyard, and how their efforts over the past year in setting up a proxy Russian government had proven to be kind of a joke. However, continued political resistance among the Japanese leadership to the idea of an expedition continued and was bolstered by American disinterest. That disinterest, though, was about to disappear. Now that the Czechs were embarked on their quixotic quest to get back home, public support in America to send them help meant Washington's attitude took a complete 180. On July 7th, the U.S. approached the Japanese with a plan sending in a force of 7,000 men from each country to secure the railways of Siberia and facilitate the Czechs getting back home. The thought that the Czechs being stranded in Siberia being a positive in the eyes of the Europeans uh, must not have crossed their minds. With the Americans having had a change of heart, Yamagata was convinced to give the go-ahead to an intervention, and the cabinet came to consensus on July 12th in favor of that move. China had already been pressed to allow Japanese troops into Manchuria, and the army began drawing up plans for a deployment across the frontier. The only major roadblock was that Hara and the Sayukai were still against the idea. The task of convincing him fell to Sayonji Kimoki, who is someone I haven't mentioned, but was an influential part of Japanese politics. He was part of the Genro, and had been a close associate of Ito Hirabumi, and was the second leader of the Sayukai between Ito and Hara. He had served as prime minister and was at that moment a member of the House of Peers. Despite his withdrawing from party politics, he was still close to Hara as the Sayukai's former leader and warned his political successor that with the Americans on board that the entire government would likely be arrayed against him on the issue. Sayonji was an old rival of Yamagata and feared that if Hara was isolated over the issue that it would hurt him politically. Hara, however, was deeply suspicious of the military coming too close to dictating government policy, which, given how things turned out over the next two decades, was a perfectly valid concern. On July 14, 1918, Goto, Yamagata, and Teruchi all pressed Hara to fall in line. But to his credit, Hara refused to back down. His hand was stronger than might initially appear, as the government could not take such a huge step without the Sayukai's blessing or it would risk being undermined during the operation itself. Even after a Privy Council meeting the same day announced support for an expedition, he refused to back down. By the end of the day, Hara was poised to challenge the government 
head on. Then on the 16th, the government shot itself in the foot. During a council meeting discussing terms of the proposed intervention, the army gave a more detailed accounting of their plans. The Americans had specified 7,000 troops each, which wouldn't be enough to accomplish anything. Some among the Japanese leadership wanted to count the 50,000 checks as a force to be matched, but Hara and others recognized the Americans weren't going to see it that way. The army had initially advertised sending two divisions totaling a little over 40,000 men on the 12th of July. Now they turned around and said that would be the force sent to the area north of Lapastad. Five more divisions of almost 110,000 men would march under Krutsk at the same time, with an additional six held in reserve. Now, even the supporters of the expedition were outraged as they realized they were getting the old switcheroo. The meeting devolved into a shouting match, and Terucci had to cut in and explain that everything proposed was hypothetical, that only the two divisions would be sent in. However, he did allow that they had to be ready for changing circumstances. And if the Czechs couldn't hold out in their positions, Japan might have to pick up the burden and ergo deploy the additional troops. Hara knew full well that the larger plan was the most likely one once the intervention got going, and insisted he would only support the smaller, multinational task force to secure Vladivostok and the railways. If the Czechs were expelled, then so be it. Japan wasn't occupying eastern Siberia. Over the course of three days, the highest elites in Tokyo were in turmoil as they wrangled over the terms of intervention. Eventually, though, on the 18th, Hara got his way. Japan would send a single division, with allowances for a second in cooperation with its allies to secure the Trans-Siberian with the express purpose of giving the Czechs a way out. There would be no massive occupation. The army was outraged, as they had come so close to their objective of a massive invasion of the Far East. But Teruchi managed to calm them down, which wouldn't be such an easy thing in the future, but this is Teruchi. He was a deeply conservative military man that the other officers felt they could rely on. Those pro-interventionists were much less impressed by the American response on July 27th. Washington indicated that one division of 12,000 men was acceptable, although higher than the proposed 7,000, but considered the second one that could be potentially committed later outside the parameters of whatever agreement they would make. Basically, the Americans were putting a hard cap on troop numbers, as they wanted to keep things even among the Allies, and they were not interested in sending so many troops to the Far East of all places. Japan could deploy additional troops on their own, but the U.S. would consider their own involvement concluded and go home. Given that American participation was a key condition for liberal support, this sent the interventionists into fits of anger. Goto tried to spin it to Japanese leaders, the U.S. was on the surface restricting Japan's options, but subtextually that what they actually meant was that if troop levels escalated, there would simply need to be a new round of negotiations at that time. It was kind of a lame excuse, and the conservatives didn't want to sign off on it, thinking it would make them look weak. But when faced with the prospect of no agreement, meaning no intervention, they backed down and publicly accepted the American terms. The limited expedition was formally approved on August 2nd, 1918. So, a kind of false consensus had been reached after a year of wrangling. Each of the Entente members had gone back and forth about what they wanted both internally and with their allies, and the entire affair is a fun demonstration of dysfunction among what would become the guarantors of peace during the 1920s. 
Everybody was pursuing their own agenda, which sometimes changed on a dime. Nobody was communicating properly, and the result was months of confusion. And now all they had to show for it was an agreement in principle that the Japanese, who were understood by everyone to be the key player in the operation, did not regard as the final word in how the intervention would be carried out. Nobody else knew that's what the Japanese were thinking. That wasn't even what Hara and the liberal opposition were thinking either. But it was exactly what the militarists in the army and government were thinking as they kept their plans for a wider invasion on hand. The British and French, by August, were probably less intent on using the Czechs as their bridge to reopening the World War I Eastern Front, as by that time, the German army was in full retreat in the West. But they still saw the Legion as a useful proxy against what was going to be the next threat, the Bolsheviks. It was just a maddening swirl of intentions. Uh, the contest within Japan also signaled a shift in its politics as well. While they didn't know it at the time, Yamagata's Choshu faction was in decline. Yamagata himself was becoming increasingly frail, and the intervention would be the last big event that he would hold court for. Without his influence, the faction would decline, which is notable because its membership overlapped the government, political parties, and the military. With that common network becoming less important, conflicts at the top increasingly became turf wars between the internationalists like Hara and the militarists who were concentrated in, not exclusive to, the military. The latter favored more of a lone wolf approach, and the Siberian intervention was going to be the first step in that direction. Now that Japan was finally on the precipice of its northern adventure, the past factions based on patronage were set to give way to competing ideologies of empire. The expedition would be an important first battleground, not over Siberia, but over Japan's future. And on that dramatic note, I'll leave you, and pick up next week on the last episode of The Intervention, where we'll finally actually see how the thing goes. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.